Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. As you know, if you have been here with us recently, we are making our way through this tremendous New Testament book. And we arrive at a text this morning that has become commonplace in our circles. And so I'm eager to unpack this text together. Acts chapter 2, we are going to read verses 42 to 47 of Acts chapter 2. And when you arrive there, if you are able, because this is the Lord's day and you are the Lord's people, would you please stand for the hearing and the receiving of the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, Luke writes, as he is borne along by God's Spirit, these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Many of us, doubtless, have heard the misguided exhortation that goes something like this. Do as I say, not as I what? As I do. Do as I say, not as I do. And the reason why, of course, you know this, the reason why this is misguided is because it simply doesn't work. So much, as a sister even reminded me the other day in this, in this language with this verbiage, so much of what we do is caught more than it is explicitly taught. Isn't this true? I want you to consider with me for just a moment parenting. I have three children ranging from nine years of age to 14 years of age. And although they do possess unique combinations of characteristics, each of them displays many of the same behavioral patterns that their mother and I exude, either for good or for ill. It's just part of it, isn't it, parents? There are perhaps a number of reasons for this. However, I would submit to you that one of the reasons surely is because they have spent so much time observing their mother and me. They've spent up until this point their entire lives with us. Our children learn how to live oftentimes through observation. Our children learn how to live through observation. Well, the reason why I bring this up is this morning and next Lord's Day, we're going to get to that in just a moment, we are seeking to do the same thing. We are actually going to try to learn how to live and worship through observation. We are attempting to learn how to live as a church, how to worship as a church by observing the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47... We really don't find any explicit or overt commands. We don't find any instructions in how to be a church or how to live as a church or how to worship as a church. What we find, rather, is a description. 
In fact, many have made much over the point that this is a descriptive text. We find description here of the way the earliest church lived and worshipped immediately after the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. What did this Spirit-filled community look like? And we find right here in the book of Acts a description of this Spirit-filled community. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this text not simply so that we can understand the way things once were. We are actually going to walk through this text so that indeed we can understand the way things once were, but also for the purpose of attempting as a church to model and pattern our lives and our life as a community of faith after what we find in Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 through 47. Well, what began as a single sermon has now become two sermons. And really, I think the Lord is perhaps paying me back for something I didn't know I was going to do this morning. I sat, uh, we didn't have membership matters class this morning, and so I sat in Pastor Tim's Sunday school class. And it was a delight, Pastor Tim, to sit in your Sunday school class. And uh, I sat toward the back, and at one point, uh, you know, toward the end of the class, Pastor Tim said, well, I'm not going to a bit off more than I can chew. And he wasn't able to finish the entire lesson he desired to finish, and so he's going to pick back up next Lord's Day, doubtless. And I turned to a brother and sister next to me, and I said, well, I never do that. <laughs> and honestly, you know, I didn't think about it in the moment. And then immediately after I said it, I thought, ah, actually, you did it this week. So perhaps the Lord, of course, knowing that I needed to be corrected, developed this into two sermons. So it's going to be two sermons in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. At least that's the plan at this point. The plan at this point is to begin the text this morning, to finish the text next Lord's Day. I reserve the right to extend it if I so choose. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to identify and unpack. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Six characteristics of the early church. We're trying to paint a portrait of what the early church looked like. And again, we're doing that so that we can imitate, by the power of the Spirit of God, the early church. Six characteristics of the early church. I think what we're going to do, this is the plan anyway, this morning we're going to look at the first three characteristics, and the next Lord's Day we'll look at the final three characteristics in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Well, with that introduction behind us, let's look first at the initial characteristic. The very first characteristic we find concerning the early church, if you're taking notes, is this. The early church was a spirit-filled community. This is foundational to understanding what is happening in verses 42 to 47. The early church was a spirit-filled community. Now, this is not explicit in our text, at least within the parameters of our text. However, it is precisely the point of the entire section that we're looking at together over the next couple of weeks. After all, this follows Pentecost and what has just happened at Pentecost. The Spirit of God has fallen on the church. In fact, we learn back in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And this community that is filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is expanding. What happens, of course, if you've been with us, you know this. If you haven't, this is perhaps new information for you. The Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel about Jesus Christ to everyone who is gathered as a result of all the commotion surrounding what's taking place through the Spirit's descent on this small, at this point, this small group of Christians numbering total around 120 people, including children. And so the Spirit has fallen on 120 people. Peter stands up and he declares the message about Jesus Christ to those who have come to see what all the fuss is about. And then as a result of Peter declaring the message about Christ, we read about 3,000. This is verse 41. We read about 3,000 people who are converted 
to Christ. They repent of their sins. They trust in Jesus Christ. They are baptized in response to the instruction that Peter gives, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ and you will receive the Holy, what? Spirit. So this promise of the Spirit undergirds every bit of the description we read beginning in verse 42 and ending in verse 47. And so now the group that was 120 people is now just over 3,000. And this is now a group that is characterized fundamentally by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is a Spirit-filled community. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say, actually, that verses 42 to 47 is a description of what a Spirit-filled community looks like. So before we can move on to any of the following characteristics that are perhaps a bit more explicit within the parameters of our text, before we can look at those, you must understand that the early church was first and foremost a gathering of people who had received the transformative presence of the Spirit of God sent by the Father through the Son upon the church. So first... First, the early church was a spirit-filled community. We're going to revisit this time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Second, second, in addition to being a spirit-filled community, the early church was a steadfast community. A steadfast community. And by the way, if you're taking notes here, this is where you'll want to leave some room. We're going to spend the majority of our time actually on this second characteristic in this portrait of the early church. And there will be, by the way, there will be a series of subpoints, and we'll try to stay on track together. Okay, I'm looking at some of you because I know you are avid note takers and you keep me systematic in my preaching. So a steadfast community. Look with me down at the text, if you would, verse 42. This is a famous verse used to describe the early church. Acts 2, verse 42, and they, now who are they? The people who are filled with the Spirit of God. Now the over 3,000 people who are filled with the Spirit of God. This collection of early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the language that Luke uses here in the Lord's superintendence as he's carrying Luke along and leading Luke, that language that he uses communicates perseverance and, and persistence. It communicates steadfastness. This was customary for the early church. This wasn't a one-off. It wasn't as if they did these four activities once every so often. No, they were characterized by these fundamental four activities. They were steadfast. In this respect. Now there are, and these are the subpoints, okay? So if you're taking notes, these are four subpoints. There are four activities to which the early church was steadfastly devoted. Let's look at these briefly. We won't spend a long time on each one, but I do want to look at each one of them. So they were a steadfast community in this respect. One, they were steadfastly devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were steadfastly devoted to the apostles' teaching. If the early church was anything, it was doctrinal. That is, it was characterized as a community that believed certain things. The early church was known, Christians have always been known as people who believe certain truths, claims about God certain truths about Jesus Christ, about his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised future return. Christians have always been people who believe certain things about humanity. In fact, it's no coincidence that today so much of what we're experiencing in our culture really is, it really is an attack on, on a fundamental view of what it means to be human Christians have always had a, a basic understanding taught in the Word of God about what it means to be a human being created in the image of God and as a result 
under the obligation and the privilege of submitting to God. And so this has always been characteristic of Christianity and always characteristic of the church. As early as the second century, you know this if you know much about me, uh, if it didn't begin in the first century, it began in the second century. After the second century, nothing begins. Okay? It's an overstatement, I know. But there, it, really, it really is remarkable to trace a lineage of something, even, even in the present, all the way back to the early church. And in this case, the second century, as early as the second century, the, the apostles' teaching, the teaching that the early church believed was given through Jesus Christ, rather from Jesus Christ, through the apostles. That's more proper. Jesus Christ is the one teaching, and he's teaching through the apostles, through the ones he has appointed and commissioned to go on his behalf. And so this teaching, this collection, is summarized in the second century in a short statement of faith. We, we would call it a statement of faith. It's, it's known at that time as the rule of faith, or if you like Latin, the regula fide, the rule of faith. Of faith. And this rule of faith was not something alongside of Scripture. It was not even something in addition to Scripture, especially in addition to the New Testament. No, no. It grew out of a proper interpretation of Scripture. And then it was used to properly interpret Scripture. But it's, it's really nothing more than what we would call a doctrinal statement or a statement of faith. Christians have always sought to summarize what it means to believe Christianly. There are parameters for this. There are parameters outside of which one is denying something integral and essential to Christianity. One author in the early church describes this as a field. And, and he says that within the field, that is within the field of the apostolic teaching, the apostles' teaching, one can play. And you might even find some disagreement within the field. And, and, and this particular author suggests that that's okay. It's okay to find some, some disagreement. You know this as families, don't you? You may be a part of a household. And um, I, would, I would surmise that everyone in your home doesn't agree on everything all of the time. Is that a safe assumption? And yet, it's, in those moments of disagreement, there, there's something rich about recognizing that it's, it's a household disagreement. And if we can maintain that understanding, actually we'll learn to disagree, disagree well within the household. And so this early Christian author describes Christian teaching or the apostles' teaching in, in that way. Church, there really is nothing more important than that we know what it is to believe like Christians. And I want to say one more bit about this before we move on. I'm, I'm tempted to spend too much time here. If you know my personality, you know why that's the case. But the apostles' teaching wasn't just doctrinal. It, it, it wasn't just beliefs about God, about humanity, about Christ, about sin, about the end, and so forth. It included teaching about how to live Christianly. So the apostles' teaching includes both what to believe about God, about man, about, about Christ, about sin, about the end, about creation, so on and so forth. But it also includes how to live Christianly. So believing Christianly and living Christianly actually are understood to be a part of what the apostles taught. It is possible to step beyond the parameters of living Christianly in such a way that our lifestyles actually contradict something fundamental to Christianity. So the early church, they were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching. Additionally, notice that they were steadfastly committed or devoted to the fellowship. And this term is pregnant with meaning in the New Testament. I was taught early as a Christian that fellowship, you may have heard this, fellowship means two fellows in the same ship. 
You may, you may heard that before, two fellows in the same ship. Simplistic, helpful, but simplistic. This word, and you may have heard this before, koinonia, this word for fellowship, translated fellowship, that is, means something far deeper than just two fellows in the same ship. It means something like an interrelated community, an intimate community, a community bound together by what is essential to each person in the community. It's the kind of thing where if one member suffers, all members suffer. It's the kind of thing where when one member rejoices, all the members experience a sense of joy because there is an organic unity between one member and the next. And that unity actually has become part of what it means to be who they are, connected. Among people who experience biblical fellowship, as this word is translated, when one member has needs, others help to meet those needs. In fact, the word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, it's often used in the New Testament. I, I didn't count. I, I think it's near 50% of the time, give or take 10%, okay? It's near 50% of the time where this word for fellowship actually is a way of talking about an offering that is taken up in support of those in need in the Christian community. It's called a koinonia, a fellowship. That's the offering. And so you can see why this is the case. It, it's bearing one another's burdens. It's experiencing this interrelated community. It's, it's foreign to the early church for one member to be suffering and other members not to suffer alongside of that brother or that sister. It's also important to realize that when we're talking about biblical fellowship, authentic Christian fellowship is something accomplished, not by us. It's something accomplished by the Spirit of God who places us into one body. And we have the privilege as Christians of manifesting this fellowship and this unity, of working to maintain this unity, but we do not establish this unity and this fellowship. We are in fellowship. What the New Testament authors oftentimes do is call us to live in a manner that is consistent with who we are, people in fellowship by means of the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now notice, notice verse 44. We're still thinking about this steadfast commitment to fellowship here. Verse 44 in your text summarizes how this fellowship is manifesting itself. Luke writes, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. You see that word common there if you're holding the English Standard Version? That's the same root word, not the same word, but the same root word as the word for fellowship. They had all things in common. There was a commonality. Now, hear me. Hear me, Christians. Hear me, church. This doesn't mean that the early church shared everything in common, without exception. It doesn't mean they had the same hobby. This does not mean that the early Christians had the same clothing choices all the time, music preferences, entertainment decisions, schooling methodology, shoe size, favorite pizza topping. I'm being silly. Nor does it mean they're rooting for the same team later this afternoon or this evening. That's not the kind of commonality in the fellowship the New Testament is talking about. And let me say it this way. This is not original to me. Nothing I say that's worth listening to is original to me. If anything comes out that's not worth listening to, perhaps it is original to me. Don't confuse unity with uniformity. Please, biblical Christian fellowship is not uniformity. And there is this constant temptation throughout the history of the church to confuse the two. To believe that somehow our, our unity is more closely akin to uniformity. In her autobiographical work, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, if you've not read that, I would submit it to you as worthy of your time. The Secret Thoughts 
of an unlikely convert, Rosaria Butterfield discusses what she deems a deficient view of fellowship within many Christian circles. You see, she says, and I think she's right, fellowship to us often means sameness. We could plug in uniformity. If we're the same, then we are in fellowship together. It means being, that is the deficient view, means being with people who have the same views, same preferences, same hobbies, same predispositions. However, she goes on to say, this view of fellowship is actually a self-centered and self-seeking approach to community. Now follow her. It seeks, she says, to love and serve those people that are just like me. Isn't that ironic? It's ironic to me that uniformity actually is not authentic Christian community. It's just me loving everyone who reminds me of me. And of course I love them. Right? Who wouldn't? They're making all the right lifestyle decisions. I mean, those are smart people. I'll find myself doing this from time. I know you don't do this. You are all far too spiritual for this kind of folly. But I do, okay? From time to time, I'll find myself saying something, something like this. I may be giving too much away here. Remember, your pastor is a sinner saved by grace and being saved by grace. But from time to time, I'll hear it come out of my mouth, and, and I know where that comes from, out of the heart. And I'll say something like this. They're really nice. And that may be true, but <laughs> I've considered why. why. Why am I offering the verdict that they're really nice? Usually what I mean is they spend a lot of time complimenting me. I know. And you think, why did we gather this morning to listen to this guy open God's word? But that's what I think Rosaria is cautioning us against. But you see, and you know this, you know this if you know Jesus Christ this morning, I know this, authentic Christian fellowship, the kind of thing to which the early church was steadfastly devoted, calls us out of ourselves. In fact, it calls us to die. (laughs) And I've been around people dying, as some of you have, And I've never heard any of them say, this really is painless. Dying dying is hard, I presume. It hurts. Authentic Christian community calls us out of ourselves to die. And it calls us into the lives of others that look differently from us. They look differently from us, but they share the same central treasure of Jesus Christ. That's Christian fellowship, you see. That's why a motley group of people can gather together and be called a church. I'm amazed on a regular basis as a pastor. I get the privilege of interacting with so many of you I'm amazed at the diversity of backgrounds. I'm I'm amazed at the diversity of of families and raising and, and just various choices and occupations. It's staggering, actually. And we're just a small selection, and our diversity pales in comparison to the broader universal body of Christ. I am flattened by the diversity in the body of Christ, and it's that diversity of people gathered together as one people through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, that's what centers us, and he is then the source and the hub of our fellowship. Why are we together? 
because we treasure the same Savior. And that's also why, Christian, hear me, that's why it's important to work through the various other challenges we're going to have in the body of Christ and to view those as opportunities rather than something that is conflicting with fellowship as an opportunity to lean into our fellowship that is rooted not in everything we agree upon, but that's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's essential to Christian fellowship. Excuse me. Essential. And that's what the early church is experiencing. A vastly different group of people who would not otherwise be together are together because they share the same Savior. If you do not know this fellowship, if you've never experienced this, the joy and the community of this, this kind of, of fellowship, I might even say it this way, sometimes the pain of this, of this fellowship, it can be yours as well through faith in Jesus Christ this morning. You see, what Christ has accomplished for us by means of his incarnation, his life, his death in our place and for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his promised future return, what he has accomplished for us is on the one hand, he, he calls us out of our sins. He rescues us out of our sins and the penalty of our sins and brings us into a right relationship with God. Fellowship we might call it. But bringing us into a right relationship with God is also a kind of rescue out of the isolation that we experience from God's people. And he calls us into fellowship, yes, with the Father, yes, with the Son, by the Spirit, but also with the church, the body of Christ. Now, this can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ this morning. So if you're here this morning and you've not surrendered to Christ and you've not given Christ your allegiance and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, I would plead with you, do not leave here without doing so. Do not leave here without talking to someone. It may be that you came with a friend. It may be that you've got someone around you you know you can trust who loves and treasures Christ. Talk to them. But we would love to visit with you after the service. So before you leave, if the Spirit of God is perhaps doing a work in your heart and your affections this very morning. Stop by and see us on your way out as you take a left through one of these doors. On the right-hand side out there is that room I mentioned in the introduction, the welcome this morning, the crossroads. And someone will be in there who would love to come alongside of you, pray with you, and walk alongside of you as we seek to please the Savior and experience the fellowship he offers to those who trust in him. Now, a couple more things here. I told you this one was going to be a bit longer, that the early church was a steadfast community. They were steadfastly devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were steadfastly devoted to the fellowship. Also, notice, they were steadfastly devoted to the breaking of bread. We're going to go through these next couple quickly. The breaking of bread, this is likely, in my understanding, a reference to the Lord's Supper. Many have discussed and debated this. Some say, no, no, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's just various meals. I don't think that's the case. In fact, later on, Luke is perfectly capable of describing other meals, even using the imagery of the breaking of bread, and there are different phrases that he uses. It seems to me, it seems to me that this isn't simply a series of breaking the bread. It's the breaking of bread, which is also found in the text. He uses the definite article, the So the church was steadfastly devoted when they gathered together to their commitment to observe the Lord's Supper. And when early Christian authors, after the apostles, wrote descriptions of Christian worship services, they would often include, in fact, every one that I can think of off the top of my head in the earliest centuries, always included a description of the way they observed the Lord's Supper. And then also notice that they were steadfastly committed to, devoted to the prayers. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Dependence on God in prayer is fundamental for the spirit-filled community. It's like breathing for the early church. I hope it's like breathing for us. 
And time and again, Luke, he demonstrates that when the people of God were gathered, they gathered in part for the purpose of praying to God. And God graciously acts through the prayers of his people and in response to those prayers. He, he answers the prayers and the calls of his people in the name of Christ. What a privilege that is. Now note this before we move on to our, our third characteristic this morning of, of the early church. I want you to note this. While prayers in the moment, okay, unplanned prayers, let's say, prayers from the heart without preparation may have been a part of their lives. We might call those extemporaneous prayers. Doubtless, those were a part of what the early church was doing. It seems that this phrase describes actually a collection of shared communal prayers. Luke does not write they were committed to prayer. He could have done that. That would have been just fine. In fact, he demonstrates throughout the book of Acts that they were indeed committed to prayer, the activity of praying. But here, he actually says they were committed to the prayers. And that's an odd way of describing the activity of praying unless you have particular prayers in mind. And so many scholars and I happen to agree with this conclusion, many scholars argue that this is, this is evidence that when the church gathered, and we see this, by the way, played out in the subsequent centuries, when the early church gathered, sure, did they, did they offer prayers in the moment, extemporaneous prayers? Yes, but they also offered memorized prayers. Brothers and sisters, it is possible to mean and intend and to be authentic about a memorized prayer. It's possible to have something written even by someone else and to adopt it and to employ it with authenticity. Anyone who has ever purchased a Hallmark card knows that. Right? You know this. You're adopting the language of someone else but you're appropriating it. You intend it. And among these prayers, doubtless, would have been included the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer would have been included here. Well, we've seen that the early church, so we're just looking at this description of the early church so that we might pattern our lives after, our worship after this description. We've seen that the early church was a spirit-filled community. They had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. Second, we found that the early church was a steadfast community. And we spent the majority of our time here so far. They were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching. They were steadfastly committed to the fellowship. They were steadfastly committed to the breaking of bread, likely the Lord's Supper. And they were steadfastly committed to the prayers. Finally, this morning, the early church was a supernatural community. The early church was a supernatural community. Look with me at verse 43. Verse 43. Luke writes, And awe came upon every soul. By the way, that word for soul there just is a way of describing a person. Awe came upon every person. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So there was, there was a sense of, of fear, reverential fear, awe, amazement, present upon every single person in the early church. In fact, we're going to see this again in Acts chapter 5 whenever Ananias and Sapphira decide to lie to the Holy Spirit, and as a result, lose their lives. And many feared as a result. This is a healthy fear, but it's a fear nonetheless. You might even call it a kind of filial fear, the kind of fear that a son or even a daughter experiences in front of the displeasure of their father. At times, that, I think, relates to what's taking place here it's a seriousness. There is a seriousness about the early church. They understand what's happening here. 
God himself is present in our midst. And when God is present, they are struck by awe and amazement and reverence. And there appears to be a relationship between the performance of wonders and signs. That's the phrase that's used, wonders and signs. Miraculous, supernatural activities, kinds of things you can't explain, right? No, no naturalistic explanation for them. These are supernatural wonders, signs and wonders. There's a relationship between the performance of those, those wonders, those signs, and the presence of awe. In other words, it, it seems that as the Lord is granting to the early church manifestations of his presence, and this is manifesting in a number of miracles, a number of things that are being done through the hands of the apostles. We're going to read about a lot of those throughout the book of Acts. As that's happening, it's instilling in the members of the church and others who are coming into the church this sense of awe. God is really in their midst. Additionally, notice that these wonders and signs are related to the ministry of the apostles. Luke writes that these wonders and signs were, don't miss this, being done through the apostles. That's important. That's very important for Luke. And you're going to see that's important throughout the book of Acts. Now, I, I don't think, let me, let me be clear here, I don't think that what Luke is saying is that only apostles perform signs and miracles. In fact, he's going to go on to share with us some signs and miracles that weren't performed by apostles. He tells us that in the book of Acts. So unless he suffers from immediate memory loss, I don't think that's what Luke is saying here. However, there does appear to be a unique connection, and we don't have time to flesh all of this out. It would be a, a fun conversation, however. There does appear to be a unique connection between the presence of the apostles and the appearance of wonders and signs as characteristic in the early church. There's some connection in Luke's mind as he's writing this verse that with the, with the presence of the apostles, you have the characteristic or common presence of wonders and signs. Now, what does this mean for us as we get close to wrapping up? On the one hand, there are differences between our context and the context of the earliest church. There are differences, and this is that statement alone isn't debated, but how are there differences is often where the debate sits. What are some of those differences? I'll mention one of them to you. It's the easiest one for me. There are perhaps other differences, okay, but that's, again, more challenging to tease out. Let me give you an example. We no longer, in my understanding of Scripture, and my understanding throughout church history, we no longer have the presence of the apostles. In other words... Um, I don't think, I don't think that even those who claim to be apostles today are apostles. And, you know, now I'm, I'm one person, and uh, you can submit my opinion to the Word of God, and I'm, I'm happy to see you do that. We don't have the presence of apostles. What we do have is apostolic teaching contained in the Scriptures, and in particular the New Testament. And it's unpacked through teachers, pastors, and various others. For God's people, it's unpacked even by us as we have the opportunity to open up God's word and read the, the writings of the apostles and those close associates of the apostles. However, we do not have Paul or Peter in our midst. We don't have them. We don't have James or John. We don't have Andrew or any other apostle for that matter. And I believe this, by the way, for a couple of primary reasons. I'll just mention these to you. Because there are some Christians who believe that the office of apostleship is still very much active in the church. I, I don't believe that's the case, and here's why. First of all, it's my understanding that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, indicates that apostles were given the role of laying the foundation for the New Testament church. In other words, it was a foundational role. It's not the actual structure. Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets are actually given the role of laying the foundation for the New Testament church. Well, once you lay the foundation, you've laid the foundation. And so it seems to me that since the foundation has been laid in the first century, that there is no longer any need for this 
apostolic office, this foundational office. The purpose has been fulfilled, in other words, for the apostles. And then the second reason I would give to you, it's consistent with what I've just shared. That interpretation of Ephesians 2.20 and other passages is consistent throughout church history. And so, for example, if you were to open up documents from the second century, we're back in the second century, I know, I'm sorry. But if you were to open up documents immediately after the apostles, disciples of apostles, all of them talk about the apostles in the past and not in the present. What you don't find characteristic in the early church after the death of the apostle John, who was the last one to die, what you don't find is, is the Christian community claiming that the apostolic office continued. They all speak about the apostles in the past. That's the interpretation I've offered to you this morning. So for those couple of reasons, it's my understanding that's one of the differences we have. I'm not an apostle. I'm a local church pastor called to teach the apostolic writings to God's people. So there are differences. But on the other hand, and we're going to, we are actually going to close with this thought. I think I've said that three times. And I heard someone got picked on the other day when they were preaching. They said, you pulled a periism because you closed us like four times. Uh, that's right. On the other hand, while there are differences, church family, hear this, and then we'll pick back up next Lord's Day if the Lord wills. While there are differences between our context and the context of the early church, there are tremendous similarities. For example, we have the same spirit that empowered the apostles. We have the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul says. The same risen and ascended Christ who continued to lead through the presence of the Spirit in the first century is the same risen and ascended Christ that continues to lead in the 21st century through the presence of the Spirit. Now, this may be manifested differently, sure, but the church is still a supernatural community. The God who healed still heals miraculously. I have no reason to believe that God stopped healing. The God who empowered for ministry still empowers for ministry. The God who answered prayer still graciously and mercifully answers the prayers of his people. And I'm doing an injustice here. I'm going I'm to mention Brett Gibson. He's thinking, what am I about to say? What is, what is he about to say, rather? Brett and I spoke recently about the difference between experiencing ministry in America and experiencing ministry in other cultural contexts. Brett, Brett and Deanna have lived outside of our cultural climate. I have not. I've only visited, but they've lived outside of our, our cultural climate here in America. And we talked about that recently. We talked about some of those, those differences. And you know this if you're in America, right? You know that in our context, we have a bit of a more naturalistic understanding of things. Whenever we ask a question like this, why does such and such happen? What we typically mean is we're looking for a kind of empirical or scientific answer to the question. We aren't asking a supernatural question. Not usually. That's just not our predisposition. That's not cultural for us. We're a naturalistic community in many respects. Not always, and that's beginning to change, but in many respects, it is still the case. Well, our conversation reminded me of this, and we talked about that a little bit, and Brett has much more insight than I do, and many of you have more insight than I do on this. It may be, I, I think, it may be that the instrument for deception in the hands of Satan in a more naturalistic culture like America is naturalism. How do you deceive people in a naturalistic culture? You employ naturalism. Right? It may also be that the instrument for deception in the hands of Satan in a more supernaturalistic culture is supernaturalism. We find this even in Scripture, various contexts. 
Pharaoh's magicians that are performing some of the same things, similar things to Moses and Aaron in the book of Exodus. And then perhaps, as we ruminate about this, perhaps, I'm just, I'm assuming here, perhaps God, as a result, chooses graciously to provide a larger concentration of signs and wonders in other contexts where such signs and wonders speak with greater effect. Do I know this to be true? No. But I've heard various missionaries testify potentially to the validity of that claim. It may be that God mercifully chooses to provide a higher concentration of what we would call wonders and signs in other contexts because in those contexts they speak with greater effect. Now come full circle with me. I've claimed that we are a supernatural community. And God still heals. God still is capable of performing signs and wonders as he chooses through the saints. We still have the same spirit. There is nothing more supernatural. There is nothing more supernatural than Christ rescuing someone out of sin and death and into life and righteousness. There's nothing more supernatural than, than for the Spirit of God to bring someone out of eternal isolation from God into fellowship with God and with God's people. This church, First Baptist Church in Powell, like all other gospel-preaching churches, remains a supernatural church for several reasons, okay? Or perhaps we could say we could give several evidences of this Not the least of which is because we are a gathering of sinners rescued by the grace of God given in Christ. That by definition means we are a supernatural community. In other words, our very presence as a church is a testimony to the ongoing supernatural work of God's Spirit among us. So, so church, rejoice. Rejoice, not because demons are subject to you or because you are able to perform wonders and signs, although you might be. And you might be surprised someday by what God does. I don't know. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven with the finger of God. And through us, as a church, God continues to write names in heaven through the preaching of the gospel and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there are so many truths and facets in this text, and I haven't come close to unpacking them all sufficiently. But I do pray you would continue to communicate the truth of your word to us as individuals, but also as a church so that we might be a spirit-filled community, a steadfast community, and by your grace and presence, a supernatural community. In the name of Christ, we pray together, and all God's people said, amen.